0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I promised you Phil Orlando, and we will bring you Phil Orlando. He's the chief equity market strategist. And the head of client portfolio management at federated hermes and what an insane weekend phil um you know do you have to look at it at the playbook rip it up throw it away write up a new one when you see this kind of volatility in commodities
1: well for for sure first of all matt thank you very much for having me back on um you know, we, we had this longer-term view going back, I guess, a year and a half ago that oil at 30 or $35 a barrel was too low and was probably going to work higher. But we, we've just seen a 45% increase in two weeks, going from $90 a barrel to $130 a barrel, you know, earlier today. I mean, that's insane. Um, and um, the implication on inflation data I think is something that that we're sort of focused on. So we're going to get an update on the consumer price index later this week. So the consumer price index in January was up seven and a half percent. That's a 40-year high. That number is expected to go to 7.9 percent in February. But none of that is going to reflect this 45 percent spike we just saw in energy. So as bad as the inflation data is today. And as bad as it's going to be when we see this update in a couple of days, you know, March, April, those numbers are going higher because we don't have an answer to what's going on right now.
2: I'm wondering, Phil, you know, if you look at the year ahead, how bad can it get for the everyday consumer feeling these price increases? I'm looking at a note from David Kelly over at J.P. Morgan, and he says if oil prices stay at 123 per barrel for the rest of the year, gasoline will average close to 420 for the year, adding more than $1,000. 420
0: to- Sweet. Oh,
2: goodness. <laughs> but, you know, Phil, I'm wondering, you know, if you are just kind of the – everyday person in the u.s. how is this impacting you
1: it's impacting you significantly my my wife and i put gas in the car yesterday and it dawned on us that that and we bought you know at a cheap gas station price of gas has gone up 50 cents in the new york area in the last week or two um you you look at and and dr kelly i think is one of the most brilliant economists in the game today so i'm not going to disagree with anything that david said but we've done some analysis on this too, and every one penny change at the pump impacts consumer spending by about one point two billion dollars. Well, we've just doubled the price of gasoline over the last year or so. We've gone from two dollars eleven cents, we're now up to what'd you say, four dollars and twenty cents. That that's gonna take a significant amount of firepower out of the consumer. We've already seen confidence levels go down to 11-year lows with the Michigan sentiment. We've already seen the savings rate come down to an eight-year low of 6.4%. That's going to start to have a deleterious impact, in our view, on – uh, consumption, economic growth and and uh, and i 'm not sure that we can fully appreciate right now because this thing is sort of exploding right in front of us, but you know we took our GDP estimate for the first quarter down at our macro policy meeting last week. i 'm sure a lot of other firms are doing the same thing um, you 've got to reflect the fact that we have done a poor job managing this situation. Energy prices well, are up, inflation's up, and that's going to impact economic growth.
0: Well, and of course, there's a war, right? Um, that that changes everything. We had some incredible tailwinds, though. Um, Matt Winkler came out with a column today talking about – Yes, um, consumers' outlook is poor, but CEOs' outlook is incredibly strong. The Business Roundtable had their uh, quarterly economic outlook index at an all-time high at the end of last year. If you look at the first quarter earnings season, 300 companies in the S&P 500 say they're going to hire more people this year than at any point during the past three decades. Um, So, and CapEx plans are off the charts. I mean... Co- corporate America is still so strong. Does this um, you know, volatility due to war reflect or or give you uh, some kind of buying opportunity?
1: So, Matt, you said something very interesting which was that the CEO meeting was 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 held at the end of last year. And if you look at the jobs data we've seen, and we just got an update on Friday, the labor market's very strong. You know, we've been averaging what five, six, seven hundred thousand hires a month uh, over the last six months or so. So the labor market's not the problem. Manufacturing's very strong. Um, we, we're, we've got inventory restocking going on. Uh, there, there's a significant deficit that manufacturers are, are trying to fill. That part of the market's strong. What what we were talking about a, a few minutes ago was the consumer. That. Um, putting food on the table, putting gas in your car, heating your home uh is costing a lot more today than it was uh a year ago and and that 's going to begin to have a negative impact on the consumer and If you look at you know uh economic growth, corporate earnings growth um the the peak of the cycle was the second quarter a year ago we're we 're not going into a recession tomorrow but but we are back on a you know, a significant glide path to something that's a lot slower.
0: All right, Phil. Great to get some time with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate your insight. Phil Orlando is the Chief Equity Market Strategist and the Head of Client Portfolio Management at Federated Hermes. Um, we do see, Chanali stocks that have bounced back, to, or we did see stocks that have bounced back to some extent in Europe. Um, They're now back down in the red. The CAC is now off 1%. The DAX is down 1.5%. Here in the U.S., we're seeing the indexes fall further. Maybe as we heard Phil talk, um, he seemed a little bit not constructive. And maybe that's why the Dow now is down 430 points. The S&P off
3: 1.4%.
0: We're going to talk to Priya Misra right now, Managing Director, Global Head of Rate Strategy over at TD Securities, Priya um really looking forward to getting your take. What does this uh, rising price of oil, you know, the, the insane amount of, I guess, uncertainty um, caused by the war in Ukraine mean for your outlook?
4: Sure. Thanks for having me, uh, Matt. So, uh, you know, we're in a stagflationary shock. We're living through the shock right now. Plus, as you said, uncertainty. So the market prices and the risk that... This could get worse and prices could continue to rise. I don't think an overall Russia embargo of the oil is priced in. So I do think if there's an announcement that the U.S. or globally or or U.S. and EU are putting forth this embargo, I think you're going to see further rise in commodity prices. And so the, the rates market is really struggling right now with pricing in higher inflation but as the, the stagflation aspect of it as well, and which is why real rates are declining. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you have the Fed that signal that uh, inflation was high before the war, and therefore they're going to start lift off. So it's all about. I think the you know next week's hike is priced in, and the markets 100% priced for it. We've taken well- uh, 50 basis points off, but. It's really what's after that. So
2: Priya, do you think that the Fed will start to raise more slowly given all of these very serious concerns that are out there about the direction of inflation here?
4: Yeah, so I think there was a big debate before the war uh, within Fed officials and in the macro community. Should the Fed start with a bang and then they have to do less later on or do they go gradual? And you could tell every Fed official was in one camp or the other. At the margin, the war, absolutely, we should push um, more Fed officials into the gradual camp. I think Chair Powell is in that camp, and so we do think that they start with 25. But I think they are likely to continue to raise in consecutive 25 basis point increments till year end. We have them going five more times after March to get close to that 175-ish range, which is where you're in the realm of neutral. I think going above neutral, which I don't think the Fed wants to communicate, that would be really negative because you've got the consumer reeling under higher prices plus restrictive policy. But Mm -hmm. right now, we're just moving off zero. And so, you know, stagflation is never fun. But if the economy has momentum, which it does, there's wage inflation. We think the consumer will be able to handle gradual pace of rate increases as well as, of course, higher prices.
2: You know, Priya, I'm I'm looking at the FRA OIS spread. (laughs) That sounds wonky, but what really it is. It is. is
0: The LIBOR OIS spread.
2: Yes. And the reason I'm looking at it is because. Fra is
0: an airport in Germany. Uh, We just say LIBOR on this show. All
2: right. All right. You learn something new every day. But the thing is, if you look at it, it is really blown out. Uh, And what it means normally is that there are some stresses underneath the financial system that the average person isn't necessarily seeing that much. I'm wondering what it says to you and overall financial stability.
4: Yeah, it, you know, this and when you say FRA, I actually do think of LIBOR right away, not the airport. So, <laughs> it is a big deal for the rates market and the last week the FRA or the LIBOR OIS spread is indicating interbank funding issues and you know that that does tighten financial conditions. This was the only topic we were talking about last week. Of course, now it's shifted to oil, which is also tightening conditions. But what's happening is I think the market's nervous that does the war result in the lack of availability of funding, in which case now you've got a funding, you've got already credit issues, and now do you have a funding crisis. I would actually, now I'm a little less worried about the funding side. There's a lot of money in the system. Banks have excess reserves. Uh, You know, money market funds have not seen massive increases on the prime side, which is what we had going into the COVID crisis. We just lived through the COVID sort of deleveraging episode. I don't think there has been more leverage built up. So is the cost of funding going up? Absolutely. And that's what that LIBOR-OIS spread is showing you. But we've got, Mm. um, you know, liquidity in the system and we've got central bank facilities and they're not getting tapped. So uh, right now, uh, the way things stand, I think there is higher cost, but it's still not systemic enough where the Fed needs to step in or where we have to get concerned that somebody doesn't get funding. I think the need for funding is lower, but credit risk is absolutely getting repriced higher, and that should show up in wider front-end as well as, uh, you know, longer-dated
0: credit spread. We only have 30 seconds, so I'll ask a gigantic question. Um, We were looking at the LIBOR spread last week because of Zoltan Pozar, and then um, on—I think people kind of dismissed that um, alarmist warning that we got from him on uh, last weekend. But then he had a great podcast with uh, Joe Wiesenthal and Tracy Alloway talking about the dollar as a world reserve currency. Is that going to change due to this war
4: so, if we're talking long term, would um, you know people outside the U.S. want an alternative? Sure, but is there an alternative? I have to say, like the liquidity, the size, the rule of law—certain things that work for the dollar as a reserve currency—I would struggle to find an alternative. So, you know, is the desire there? Yes, but I don't know if uh, the dollar will be replaced anytime soon. Mm. It's the same question you can make with SWIFT, and the way the reason the dollar works is everyone uses it. So, there's that network effect. So I'm a little less concerned that, um, you know, lack of alternatives will mean that, that the dollar actually stays a, a reserve asset.
0: For- I think it's a, it's a question we're asking renewed now that Visa, MasterCard, yeah. and Amex have all um, stopped their business in Russia. Now everyone uh, on that side of the Iron Curtain, if I can use that phrase, is looking for um is looking for a solution again. Priya, great talking to you. Priya Misra there, a managing director and the global head of rate strategy at TD Securities. Everett Millman joins us, chief market analyst at Gainesville Coins, to talk about commodities. And I guess we'll start specifically, Everett, with gold. We saw it run up past $2,000 for a little while today. Um, If Russian bullion is effectively banned uh, new gold out of Russia's band. How important is that? How important is their production?
5: Well, they are um, one of the major holders of gold, and they, they certainly make up some large proportion of global demand. But the main impact of that move that I would be looking for is banning Russian gold from you know, London and, and access to Western trade really does push them into the arms of shanghai and there are a few other global exchange- exchanges where russia could theoretically get its gold to market so in some sense in the short term yes it, it, it is a negative for, for russian gold but ultimately in the long run it may change some of the kind of alliances and um the trade of gold in the east to west uh, we may see russia really turn more to beijing and to uh, shanghai for its gold by the way
0: how How important is gold as a reserve uh, currency, a store of wealth? As we see, you know, central banks around the world telling uh, a large autonomous nation, you can no longer have access to the dollars that we were holding for you. Uh, You know, effectively hitting the uh, greenback as a world reserve currency pretty hard.
5: Right. Um, I think it is still crucial, although gold is often overlooked because it is seen as his barbarous relic that we no longer directly back our money with gold, of course. Um, But as you said, central banks around the world hold many, many tons of gold. Um, And we've been seeing that um, on the COMEX and in the LBMA that there have been outflows. Uh, There's been quite a bit of gold kind of taken out of the -the over-the-counter trading markets. Um, And that implies that, oftentimes there are large sovereign buyers behind those moves. So given that um, not just Russia but anyone who's willing to do business with Russia could be cut off from uh, Western finance and from Western banking, that does perhaps highlight gold's role in in the future, that it is um, still a a zero-risk asset that has the same characteristics as a reserve currency, even though um, I don't believe any of this directly threatens the dollar status.
0: All right, Everett. Thanks so much for joining us. Everett moment, there, chief market analyst at Gainesville Coins. Hopefully, get to spend a little bit more time with you later. I'm looking at the S&P right now. Shanali, breaking it down by industry group. You got to look at SPX L1 or L2 or L3. It's kind of a pain. You don't have to do that with the stock 600, but. I'll look at it level one. I'm trying to see how chips have done. I guess you've got to break it down to Infotech. I suppose I could just look at the SOX index, right? Is that the the Philly SOX index to see um, uh, how chips have done in terms of uh, semiconductors? Or I could look at the iShares ETF to see uh, how they've done year to date, because we've been talking about the supply chain problem and chip shortage for so long, um, but the Uh, industry has lost a lot of market cap since 2022 began. Let's bring in Lincoln Clark to talk about what's going on and why. He's a partner at KPMG, but he's also the global leader of their semiconductor practice. Lincoln, thanks so much for joining us. Um, How is the semiconductor industry faring right now? There's such, as we all have discovered, uh, such a crucial part of the manufacturing process for almost everything that we buy and use. but they haven't been rallying this year. Good morning, Matt.
3: Thank you for uh, making some time. And, uh, yeah, the semiconductor industry, you're right. If you uh, you were talking about the uh, SOX tracker there, certainly some market cap has been taken out of it. But we undertook a uh, survey of semiconductor executives in the fourth quarter, so October, November last year, looking out to 2022. And their confidence is, is, is at an all-time high. Um, you know, we're focused on not just revenue growth, but CapEx, headcount, R&D, and profitability. So, notwithstanding the market cap changes that you're referring to there, the executives themselves are very, very positive. This this is um, a great
0: point, and I don't know if you've seen it uh, yet, but Matt Winkler, our editor-in-chief emeritus, wrote um, an opinion piece this morning about... Um, C-suite confidence. Basically, the uh, the 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 CEOs of companies, not just in semiconductors, but across the S&P 500 are really optimistic for future growth, really optimistic for profits, uh, adding more employees than they have at any time over the last decade. is, is the semiconductor industry ramping up um, the same way? I mean, we've seen so many CapEx reports in terms of investment. Are they hiring people? Are they bringing production back home?
3: Well, uh, we've been doing this confidence index for 17 years with the Global Semiconductor Alliance, and the confidence that they exhibited in 2022 was the highest it's been. If you think about the drivers that are behind the semiconductors, you mentioned it's become very visible to everybody that semiconductors are in pretty much everything that might impact our work life, personal life. But the drivers are there. You know, a lot of businesses are going from work from home to now a a hybrid of work from office and home. That's going to, you know, drive demand for relooking at the office infrastructure. Cloud and digitization continues. And then, you know, automotive, which has become, I think, very visible and industrial. You know, they still have a desperately seeking semiconductors mentality, I think, And then you have your, you know, wireless 5G and gaming that continues. Profitability, I think, is going to be a little bit more stressed this year, as um, our survey would say that, you know, 34% of our executives think their revenue is going to grow over 20%, but, um, you know, nearly 70% say that they think the profitability might only grow in the sort of 1% to 10%. So some of the costs of production, Uh, logistics, transportation, you know, that's playing through a little bit on profitability. But top line, very, very confident, high growth.
2: I mean, how does this global geopolitical story really play into things here? It just sounds like a lot of these executives are speaking, um, you know, before Russia's invasion of Ukraine.
3: Yeah, Sonali, thank you. I mean, the, you know, the pandemic and some of the uh, geopolitical um, uh, pieces of the semiconductor industry, have, you know, been going on for a period of time. So I think executives have had that in the back of their mind as their setting strategy. Clearly, the you know the situation of the last two uh, two and a half weeks or so here just creates and continues to create more uncertainty. It's just, just going to exacerbate the supply chain issues that the semiconductor and many industri- other industries, to be fair, are going to face. H-
0: having said that, Lincoln, how important is how important are Russia? and Ukraine to semiconductor production? I mean, um, do they supply, you know, uh, wafers, silicon, anything that you need?
3: Russia doesn't have any substantial, or Ukraine, any substantial leading-edge wafer capacity. Um, you know, there are some core elements, though, that, you know, filter into semiconductor production, and you've probably seen some discussion around palladium, for example. But, um, At an as high. I said... Yeah. Uh yeah, so that's uh, reacting a little bit. Um so if, if a, a semiconductor company, you know, had that supplier in that neighborhood as a you know, the first source, obviously uh, you know, there are second and third sources that I think will be driving a lot of uh, procurement activity right now.
0: Lincoln, uh, great to get some time with you. Thanks so much for joining us on such an important issue. Lincoln Clark is a partner at KPMG. He is also KPMG's global leader of the uh, semiconductor practice. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at matt miller1973.